The following teaching is possible thanks to the friends and partners of Spirit and Truth Fellowship International. Well, God bless you and welcome to this Spirit and Truth Fellowship Teaching of the Month. You know, I want to teach on the Christmas story, the real Christmas story. And I think this is really, really important because the birth of Christ is really, really important. And frankly, the traditional Christmas story, it not only contains a large amount of error, but it also presents a a very cold and hard and lonely picture of the birth of Christ. And the birth of Christ is a, is a record, the true record of the birth of Christ is a record of tremendous love, tremendous obedience to God, tremendous self-sacrifice and giving and sharing with others and people making an effort to obey God. <laughs> the real Christmas story as it's presented in the Bible is really genuinely inspiring. Now, as we read the record in the scripture, which we're kind of kind of start in the Gospel of Luke, and then we're going to switch to the Gospel of Matthew, and then back to the Gospel of Luke, and we have to realize that in order to follow the complete Christmas story, it appears in Matthew and Luke, and to do it in chronological order, we have to kind of hop back and forth. So, for example, if you were going to read the Christmas story, let's say you want to get up on Christmas morning and read the Christmas story, you're going to start by reading Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to verse 80, then Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25, then Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 30, and then back to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 22, and then Matthew 2.23 and Luke 2.39 and 40. Those are both summary statements about Jesus growing up in Nazareth. And so we're going to read through some of this. I, I can't do the entire thing. There isn't time in this short teaching. I can't do the entire Matthew and Luke, but we'll do the chewy caramel center of the Christmas story and cover the angel talking to Mary, talking to Joseph, and then the birth of Christ, and then the shepherds. We'll cover that in this teaching. Now, I want to also say that when you do a teaching like this, where you're just covering verse after verse after verse directly, and you're pulling lessons from the verses, it can be kind of hard on a teacher and hard on a student, because the, the easy way to teach is to take maybe a two or three verse segment, pull a lesson out of that, and do it, then do a whole teaching on that one lesson, that one point, so people really get the point. But when you're doing an expository, teaching like this will be, where you're covering verse after verse after verse of scripture just as if you were reading them yourself. There's a whole bunch of stories that go by, a whole bunch of records, a whole bunch of lessons. And so it's helpful sometimes to just have a piece of paper and make notes about, ooh, that was a good point. And, oh, that was a good point. And, and then you can go back after the teaching and say, wow, here are the points, the lessons that I really got from hearing the teaching this time. And that's a good way to deal with expository teachings like this will be. I'm going to start by saying that we don't really know when Jesus was born. The older I get and the more I study, the less confident I am of exactly when Christ was born. I used to, if you'd asked me 10 years ago, I could give you a, a month and a day. But as we've continued to do research into the text, it is not as clear when Christ was born. 
I can pretty confidently say he was not born in December, and that's because I understand Joseph's love for Mary and what is involved in travel in December in in uh, in Israel when you can easily have extremely cold weather um, and snowfalls. And Joseph wasn't the kind of man that would put Mary through that while she was pregnant. So there's a a very, very good chance that Jesus Christ was born in September, but that may not have been the exact time. Here's what I do know. In not telling us exactly when Christ was born, God is speaking loudly that what we're supposed to focus on is that he was born and what God was doing with and in the people in the events surrounding the birth of Christ. And sometimes we can get so stuck on finding out exactly the date he was born that we miss more of the point of what God is trying to say. If God wants to tell us exactly, he can. For example, when you read the book of Ezekiel, it's got very, very specific dates. And God could have done the same thing in Matthew and Luke. And the fact that he doesn't speaks very loudly to us. So let's go right to the biblical record and start in the Gospel of Luke. Now, if we start reading in Luke chapter 1, as I said in verse 5, then we get the backstory about the birth of John the Baptist. And I'm not going to cover that in this teaching, although it is really important and an important piece of the backstory. And the angel that talked to Zechariah in the temple made it very clear to Zechariah that Jesus Christ would be the forerunner of the Messiah. By the way, I should say at this point that I'm going to be making some points that I don't give a whole lot of substantiation for when I make the point here in this tape, just because like, for example, when we do a kind of a study on the word Cataluma later, the word guest room, you know, I'm not going to go and do a big word study in this teaching because frankly, those can be boring to listen to. But be assured that if you go to the revised English version Bible that we have on our website, You can go to the commentary and you can find commentary on all this backstory. So the angel made it clear to Zechariah that his wife was going to give birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. And of course, then she did. Verse 24 of Luke chapter 1 says, After these days that Zechariah was in Jerusalem, Elizabeth, his wife, conceived And she hid herself five months. And that five months is important because in verse 26, it opens up talking about Mary and the angel. And it says, now in the sixth month. And you could say, what sixth month? (laughs) It's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So Elizabeth now was in her sixth month of being pregnant. And in that month, That's when Gabriel appears. So verse 26 of Luke chapter 1 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now that's one fairly long sentence, and it is packed with information. But the information is buried in the culture. And this is something that you and I have to come to grips with and be honest with, which is the fact that when something was normal or known in the culture, it wasn't usually written about. For example, verse 24, very simply, it says, after these days, Elizabeth's wife conceived. 
It doesn't tell you Zachariah went home and he made his wife comfortable and then he made love to his wife. And it just says she conceived. Everybody knows how that happens. It, it doesn't tell you about all the, all the private, intimate stuff about a person's life. That's exactly the way the Bible handles common, ordinary stuff. You know, if you notice, there's no recipes in the Bible for food. People ate all the time. People ate every day, just like we do, or at least most every day. But there's not one single recipe in the Bible because those kind of things were known. And so there's a lot of things we need to unpack in this sentence verse in verse 26 and verse 27. So the first thing we're going to unpack is it says that Gabriel was sent to a city named Nazareth. And it's often taught that, well, Nazareth is some backwoods city out of the way. Nobody knew about it. And it's true that that Nazareth itself was a very, very small village. But what we need to know and what you wouldn't know unless you went to Israel, you studied the archaeology, you studied the geography and that kind of thing, is that Joseph and Mary in settling in Nazareth lived only about three miles from the capital city of the Galilee, a town called Sephorus. Zipporah was about three miles to the north and east of Nazareth, and Zipporah was the seat of where the Tetrarch, well, at the birth of Christ, it was Herod the king. By the time it was the ministry of Christ, it was the Tetrarch of Judea, Herod Antipas, who then moved his capital uh, to Tiberias. But the point is that as Jesus grew up, Zipporah was a very prosperous, very cosmopolitan town, and it would have Latin spoken there, Greek spoken there, Aramaic spoken there, Hebrew spoken there, lots of building going on. Josephus wrote that Zipporah was the gem of the Galilee. So Jesus Christ got exposed to the pinnacle of culture in his time. He wasn't raised in some backwoods town where he never met another person, you know, never heard another language, never saw great, wonderful mosaics or, you know, what a theaters looked like and all that stuff. No, he was exposed to all of that. It'd be like being raised in New York today, something like that. Because with Joseph and Jesus, obviously, particularly as, as Jesus grew up and needed work, they needed a place to work. Where would they go? There was always work going on in Zipporah, absolutely. And then it says to a virgin who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And I want to talk about the virgin birth, but I'm going to talk about it later when it comes up in Matthew. One thing we know, though, is that girls in that culture were typically married between 12 and 14. That was a typical age for a girl to be married. By the time she was 15, she was becoming considered, wow, you're, you're really getting on the older side here. You know, we need to get you married off. And so when we're talking about Mary in the birth of Christ record, and you see how bold she is and how powerful she is and how connected she is with the things of God and how committed she is. You know, you're not talking about a girl in her mid-20s or early 30s or in her 40s who's settled in life. You're talking about probably a 13, 14-year-old girl, and you realize, wow, you know, people grew up quick in that culture, and they did. Well, at the time of Christ, the average lifespan for a girl was in her early 30s. Average lifespan for a man was in his late 30s. So by the time a, a girl was 15, for a lot of women, half their life was over. And so uh, it was important to mature quickly and deal with life powerfully early on. And she's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Now, in that culture, betrothal was as strong as marriage. 
You weren't married yet legally, meaning you had not consummated the marriage by sexual intercourse. But a betrothal was so strong that it had to be dissolved by an actual divorce. And this is one of the reasons it can be a little confusing to read the birth record of the Messiah, because sometimes, like here, Mary is said to be betrothed to Joseph, and other times he uh, it calls her his wife. Uh, you know, so you're like, well, wait a minute. Is she a wife or is she betrothed? From a cultural standpoint and the fact that both had to be dissolved by a legal divorce, a betrothal was basically as good or as strong as a marriage. And that's why the terminology goes back and forth in the record. So Mary's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The house of David meant that they were descendants of David. And of course, that would make their ancestral hometown Bethlehem. And the virgin's name was Mary. Verse 28, and coming to her. So here's this angel. <laughs> Back to the story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. So, and coming to her. And so here comes Gabriel to Mary. Now, he isn't in this white, you know, shining uniform with gigantic wings, you know, that kind of thing. When you study angels appearing to people in the Bible, they they basically always appear like a human being, like a man. And you can see this with the Joshua record. You can see it with the Samson record. You can see it, well, just all through the scripture. Just, just take a look. So from Mary's perspective, she doesn't know this is an angel. This is some guy that she's never met. And he walks up to her, which is unusual in that culture because men didn't address women. You know, you respected the distance between men and women in that culture. And yet this, this guy walks up to her and greeting favored one, the Lord is with you. And he would, of course, be talking about uh, the Lord uh, God, and he might have been speaking Hebrew, in which case he would have probably said, you know, something like Yahweh is with you or something like that. And part of the, part of the honesty with the record is we don't know where she was. You know, I know that it's favorable as the church has developed through history. It's favorable to find exact spots where things happened. And sadly, oftentimes, as soon as somebody comes along and says, this is the spot where something happens, then somebody builds a church and tries to figure out how to take money because of it. But in any case, here's the angel and he just, he meets with Mary. We don't know where she was. He says, greeting, favored one, the Lord is with you. <laughs> Verse 29, but she was greatly perplexed at the saying and tried to discern what kind of greeting this might be. Yeah, and why the guy was there in the first place. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. And that is such a powerful statement and occurs a number of times in the birth record. The angel tells Zechariah not to be afraid when the angel appears to Zechariah. The angels tell the shepherds not to be afraid when the angels appear to the shepherds. You know, fear, fear is self-centered. When you're afraid, you're thinking about yourself. And you can't really successfully do the work of God if you're thinking about yourself. This is one of the, uh, the clear salient points in the birth record of Jesus Christ. And so here's Mary. Now, she obviously was alone. She didn't have a crowd of women around her. And this, this man approaches her at a time when she's alone and greets her. And of course, there would be a tendency there to be startled, maybe to be a little afraid. And so the angel speaks to that and says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you've found favor with God. 
And he says, and look, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son and will call his name Jesus. Now, it's interesting that the angel did not leave the name Jesus up to chance. And in the Bible, the name Jesus and the name Joshua are exactly the same. Jesus and Joshua are the same name. Yehoshua or Yeshua in Hebrew and Iesus in Greek. That's the, the name and it's the name for Joshua and the name for Jesus. And there's a great typology between Joshua and Jesus, where so much of Jesus's life was typed already by Joshua, like leading people into the promised land, that kind of thing, because they, God didn't want to leave it up to chance about Jesus's name. So the angel told Mary to name the child Jesus, and he told Joseph to name the child Jesus. So God was not going to leave that up to chance. And so he says, uh, verse 32, the angel says, he, meaning your child, will be great and will be the son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, Mary may have been a young woman, but she would have been educated enough in the scripture that she knew exactly what the angel was saying here. The angel was not speaking in code. He starts out in verse 32. He will be called the son of the most high. And in the Old Testament prophecies, the Messiah, there were different people called son, but the uh, the Messiah was definitely like in Psalm 2:7. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. And there are other prophecies. So first the angel says he's going to be the son of the Most High. That would begin to alert Mary. Wow, this is really special. Then the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That's really powerful because there was no throne of David at the time Mary lived. You know, the man who was reigning as king, Herod, was not of the line of David. Kingdom of Judah was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And the throne of David being in Jerusalem, Jerusalem was burned to the ground. And the throne of David was never really reestablished ever after that. And now all of a sudden, and, but there was prophecies that it would be. And so here's the angel, and Mary's living in a time when there is no throne of, of David, and all of a sudden, you know, here's this angel, God will give to your son the throne of his father David. Mary would not have missed what that meant. And then verse 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And again, that was not code. Mary knew exactly what this meant. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 16, this is Nathan the prophet to King David. Your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before you. Your throne will be established forever. Wow. I mean, Jesus was going to be born. He was going to be the Messiah. This was going to be Mary's child. Now, Mary at this point has a question because in the Old Testament, the understanding was for the child to come out of the, the line of David, you needed a man from the line of David, a woman from the line of David. And Mary's betrothed. She's not married in the sense that she's together with Joseph and they're living in a house together and they're having sex. And so Mary asks a very obvious question. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, 
How will this be, seeing I am not knowing a man? That's a very literal translation, but very accurate. She said, wow, Angel, this is really cool, but (laughs) how's this going to happen? I'm not having sex, so how am I going to get pregnant? Now, this is huge for us. This really tells us something about the thinking of the time, because if you ask the average Christian on the street, was it well known that Jesus Christ would be born of a virgin? And they'd say, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Isaiah chapter 7, you know, says that, behold, the virgin shall be with child. So, yeah, everybody knew that the Messiah was going to be born of a virgin, except nobody did know it. Why? Because in Isaiah 7, there's a mistranslation, and we'll cover this in more detail later when this comes up in the Gospel of Matthew. But the fact of the matter is the word, and I'll cover it again in, in just a few minutes, but the word virgin in Isaiah 7 should be young woman. Now, can a young woman be a virgin? Yes, but nobody thought a a virgin could get pregnant. So when the Hebrew text of Isaiah 7 says, Behold, a young woman will be with child, which, by the way, a number of, of modern versions, or at least some modern versions, go that way. And starting the first one I'm really clearly aware of was the revised standard version in 1952 that said the young woman will be with child. So the people of the time, even a godly woman like Mary and a godly man like Joseph, they weren't expecting a virgin birth, never heard of such a thing. So Mary rightly asks the angel, you know, angel, I'm I'm not having sex, so I don't know how I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. Verse 35, and the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, which is an idiomatic understanding, you know, as the man had sex with the woman and, and lay on top of her, the, the overshadowing, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so the angel, was there more of an explanation between Mary and the angel than we simply have here in the Gospel of Luke? Perhaps. There may have been a much longer discussion. But in any case, this is the chewy caramel center. The angel reveals to Mary, no, you're going to be a virgin and God himself is going to make sure that you get pregnant, which was just obviously a complete surprise to Mary and something that, that she had to digest. And so now the angel gives Mary evidence that God can, as if Mary needed this, but gives her evidence that God can do things that are seemingly impossible because in verse 36, the angel then says, and look, your relative Elizabeth, she also has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So Elizabeth was old. Zachariah was old. Elizabeth was beyond the time of childbearing. People knew that. And so to show that God can move in this field and getting people pregnant, the angel just says, hey, by the way, your, your cousin Elizabeth, uh, she's six months pregnant, by the way. <laughs> in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. What a powerful, again, you know, we pull out our notepad and say, you know, make a note, you know, here's here's a lesson just Im- embedded in the record in this one little verse, you know, that when, when God wants to get something done, he will, what he needs from us is faith and faithfulness and the, and the desire to get God's work done. And it may mean sacrifice and it may take a risk. You know, but we can get things done for God and nothing's going to be impossible for him if he's told us to do it and we step forward with faith. And that's exactly what Mary did. Step forward with trusting God. Verse 38. 
And Mary said, Lo, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And it doesn't say, you know, did he just poof and go away? Or did he walk away? Angels did both in, in the records in the scripture. You know, they did both. Sometimes they walked away just as like they were people and they just walked away. Sometimes poof, they were gone. What did the angel do here? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It just says the angel departed from her. Let's go back to Mary. You know, the angel now has told her, you're going to be pregnant without having sex. You know, Mary's got to be processing that at like lightning speed, thoughts bouncing all over her head. How am I going to handle this? What is Joseph going to think? What's the, what are the women in the village? What, you know, and, and bottom line, she just, she, and this is just really true of godly, mature believers. You know, you know, you've got to make a decision and go with it. And Mary had a choice right in this instant. She could have said, you know, um, gosh, I, I just can't take the heat. You know, I can't take the pressure. I can't take the scandal. Go find somebody else. But just in, in that moment is this whole concept and the idea of, of giving the birth to the Messiah and what that would mean to mankind. The Messiah is the Savior of the world. She has a chance to bring the Savior of the world into being, in which, of course, Jesus Christ then paid for the sins of mankind. You know, yes, it's going to take some sacrifice. Yes, it's going to take some giving. Yes, it's going to take some risk. Yes, there are going to be things about it that are going to be difficult. Anna in the temple said, a sword to Mary, a sword will pierce through your soul also. This isn't a cakewalk. In the Christian life, by the way, if you're taking notes, write this down. The Christian life, rightly done, is not a cakewalk. Scripture says, yea, all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And you better believe Mary and Joseph fell into that category. Absolutely. But I love Mary's response. At 13, 14 years old, a mature believer, you know, I am the servant of of the Lord. If this is the way he's moving, may it be done unto me according to your word. And it was, it was done. And then of course, Mary's pregnant and she's, <laughs> she's got to figure things out. And who's she going to talk to? Well, the angel had just said, your relative Elizabeth. So Mary obviously then felt safe with Elizabeth. So what did she do? Well, in those days, right, you know, pretty quick, as soon as she could get life figured out enough to leave. In those days, Mary got up and went with haste into the hill country to a city of Judah and went into the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And this, of course, is when Elizabeth confirms to Mary, wow, the mother of my Lord is here in my house. Just amazing revelation, absolutely amazing revelation here as Mary meets Elizabeth. And so there's a discussion back and forth between Mary and Elizabeth and prophecies. Um, and then we see in verse 56 of Luke chapter 1, it says, And Mary stayed with her about three months and returned to her house. And so Mary's with Elizabeth for about three months. These are the first three months of her pregnancy, uh, the first trimester, uh, especially for a woman giving birth for the very first time, can be very disconcerting, sometimes very difficult. It's really good that 
Mary could be with Elizabeth during that time and Elizabeth be fully supporting where if she was back home in Nazareth, people wouldn't have known that this was the promised Messiah, that she had not stepped out and committed adultery on her betrothed. So she got to get through that first trimester in a loving, caring environment and also get a lot sorted out, I am sure, about how she was going to move forward, how she was going to deal with the pressures. And as far as Joseph, I'm sure she and Elizabeth just prayed. And Zachariah would have been in on that too. And they would have just prayed and said, Lord, you know, this is of you, so you got to figure this out. Mary's not going to be able to go and say, by the way, God got me pregnant. So all that stuff had to be sorted out, and God made that provision in that three months. Absolutely. And then the record shifts, verse 57, it was Elizabeth's time to give birth. And so the record of Luke shifts to the birth of John the Baptist. And at that point, then, we need to, we need to go back to the Gospel of Matthew. And I said early on in this teaching that if you're going to do, if you're going to understand the birth record of Christ, you've got to understand that the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke are interwoven. And so at the time that after three months when Mary returns home to Nazareth, the Luke record has a break and we need to insert the Matthew record. And this, this isn't contradictory stuff. This is God being the author of the entire Bible. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, that God knew how he would have Matthew authored, how written, how he would have Luke written. And so the two records would dovetail beautifully, and it would take a little bit of effort on our part as lovers of God, as students of the scripture, to see how those scriptures fit together. And what we see here is Mary goes back to Nazareth after being with Elizabeth for three months. So she's three months pregnant. So I'm sure she was beginning to show a little bit, or at least she would have very quickly after that. So now we go to to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll pick up the record in verse 18. So Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 starts out, Now the birth of Jesus Christ happened this way. His mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Well, <laughs> actually, yeah, if I'd have been writing this, I'd have said she was found to be with child because they, people didn't find her. In other words, you know, if she wasn't telling people, look, I'm pregnant by God, nobody would have believed that. But she, she's over three months pregnant. She was discovered as being pregnant. Absolutely. And so before they came together, she's found to be with child. And of course, it was by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures making it clear to us that she didn't step out on Joseph. This is God's work, making sure that she was pregnant. Verse 19. Now, Joseph, her husband, look here, call, they haven't come together as husband and wife yet. And yet it calls Mary, his wife, and Joseph, her husband. Again, the betrothal was that strong. Then it says, now Joseph, her husband, being righteous and yet not wanting to disgrace her. Why the contrast there? Being righteous and yet, or being righteous but not wanting to. What's going on? You see the word righteous. How are you righteous in the Old Testament? You did the law. People obeyed the law, and that was the definition. You weren't righteous because you thought you were righteous, or you weren't righteous because you say you said, well, 
I love God. Of course, I don't do much of the law, but I love God. No, you were righteous if you did the things that the law said to do. That's a good example for us. Life lesson here. You know, we are righteous before God because of the work of Christ. But now the scripture commands us to live righteously as well. What does that mean? It means we find out what God wants us to do and we do it. And that's what Joseph did. So here's Joseph. Now the scripture says he's righteous. Well, according to the law, what's he, you know, he could do a big investigation. I mean, there's, he, he could have really pushed this thing. He might have even pushed it as far as trying to get Mary stoned to death if he could find the man that, that supposedly got her pregnant. So it says he's righteous. And yet, he, he's living a righteous life in obedience to the law. And it's like, oh my gosh, the woman I'm betrothed to is pregnant. Uh, uh. And, and he's like, but I, I don't want to disgrace her publicly. I don't want to go there. So he decides to divorce her secretly, meaning below the public eye, just, you know, dissolve the betrothal. And then I love verse 20. But while he was thinking, about these things. While Joseph was thinking about these things, Joseph loved Mary. Joseph was not an impulsive man. Joseph was a caring, kind, wonderful man. And so he didn't make an impulsive, fast decision. Now she's pregnant. I better divorce her. He's, he's sitting there going, wow, this is really a quandary. And he's, he's thinking about these things, wanting to protect, obviously, his family and his reputation, but at the same time, protect Mary. And he's thinking, how in the world do I pull this off? It's a tough one. No question about it. This is a tough situation. So he's thinking about it. And then, look, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. In other words, wow, we know you're a son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to favorably accept Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. And again, the angel may have said more than that in the dream. I'm, I, you know, the Bible doesn't tell us the full extent of the dream. This is the chewy caramel center of what, of what the angel said, that, that Mary's pregnant by God, because even Joseph would have to sort that out. I mean, he'd be like, uh, is this anywhere in the Old Testament? Um, I don't, I don't think I've ever read anything about, you know, the, the mother of the Messiah, you know, being pregnant by, you know, he's got to sort that out too. And so, and Joseph certainly, again, wasn't expecting a virgin birth. And do not be afraid to favorably accept Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. There's a, a virgin conception. There'll be a virgin birth. Verse 21, and I love the angel here, covering all his bases. And she will give birth to a son, and you call his name Jesus. Don't debate. Don't discuss other names. <laughs> You're going to name that child Jesus. Why? And Jesus, again, the the Hebrew they would have been speaking in, they wouldn't, Joseph would not have been necessarily thinking or speaking in Greek. Um, you know, Yehoshua, shortened often to Yeshua, is Yahweh saves. So his name will be called Yahweh saves, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And, you know, it's interesting because Joseph at this point would not have known how Jesus would save his people from his sins. If you remember the record, for example, once Jesus got his apostles in place and he'd been teaching them for a while, in Matthew 16, he introduces the fact that he's going to die. 
the Son of Man must be killed and on the third day rise again. And the apostles didn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, we knew that from Scripture. Peter takes him aside, Lord, <laughs> where are you coming from, man? <laughs> you know, that'll never happen to you. And Christ rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. And the apostles, until Jesus Christ actually died, they didn't believe he was going to die. I mean, the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus, here's Jesus, he died on the cross. They went home. They're going home to Emmaus. They're walking on the road. And, you know, Jesus shows up. They think he's a stranger. You know, gosh, well, we really thought he was the one who was going to deliver Israel. We, we really thought he was Messiah. Boy, were we ever wrong. The guy's dead. I mean, even when Christ died, they didn't know he was going to die. So Joseph, I mean, if the angel had said here, you know, for it is he, it is your son who's going to save his people from their sins by dying, Joseph would have said, what in the world are you talking about? But thankfully, the angel didn't say anything about Jesus dying at this point. He just said, he's the one that's going to save his people from their sins, which, of course, is what they were expecting in the Old Testament, somebody that would save Israel. And then verse 22, now all this took place with the result that what was spoken by Yahweh through the prophet was fulfilled, saying, now watch verse 23 here that I'm going to read out of the Gospel of Matthew. Look, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And here in quoting Isaiah chapter 7, in Isaiah, when it says the virgin will be with child, the Hebrew word is Alma, and Alma simply means young woman. And had they wanted to be a little clearer on whether it was a virgin birth or not, they would have used in the prophecy in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7, it would have used the word Petula, but it doesn't. It uses the word Alma. A young woman is going to be with child. That's why Mary didn't know about a virgin birth. That's why Joseph didn't know about a virgin birth. That's why the religious leaders called Jesus Christ a bastard child, you know, that Mary had gone out and slept around before she married Joseph. And here it quotes the Old Testament, but in the quotation of the New Testament, in, in verse 23, look, the virgin will be with child. It doesn't use the word gune for woman. It uses the word parthenos for virgin. So what's happening here is the gospel of Matthew is taking and quoting the prophecy out of Isaiah, but it's clarifying that prophecy for us and saying, oh yeah, you know that young woman in Isaiah chapter 7? Yeah, well, she's going to be a virgin. And the word Alma has the semantic range that it can be a, a virgin or a non-virgin. It's just a young woman. And now the text clarifies for us, no, that prophecy clarifying it in the semantic range of Alma, what it meant was virgin. And it's the virgin who's going to be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. And the angel then, again, this is happening in, in Joseph's dream. So he's getting this. He's getting an understanding. Wow, I understand what's happening here. Mary is pregnant, but she didn't sleep around on me. She is impregnated by God. And so verse 24, then Joseph, awakening from his sleep, did as the angel of Yahweh commanded him and took to himself his wife. And again, here it's called, uh, Mary's called his wife. And, and I love the obedience here. You know, again, one of the tremendous things that we see in this gospel record is, is great obedience by the people when they knew the word of God. Because the angel had said in verse 20, don't be afraid to favorably accept Mary, your wife. And what's it say? As soon as Joseph got up, 
He awoke from his sleep, did as the angel of Yahweh commanded him. What a powerful witness to you and I. Joseph was a righteous man. God told him what to do. He did it. We're done. God told him what to do. He did it. We're done. You know, he, he didn't, you know, mess around. He didn't make excuses. He didn't find reasons why he didn't have to obey. God told him he obeyed. Boy, you and I are in, in such good company if we do the same thing, and it's so wise to obey God. We have to trust that God knows better than we do. And when he tells us to do things in his word, what's our best move? <laughs> I think we know it. It's called get about doing them. Absolutely. Then there's a really powerful verse following this. He takes his wife, he takes Mary home as his wife, verse 25. But he did not know her sexually until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And it's such a powerful witness of the righteousness of Joseph and the love he had for God and the love he had for Mary. He takes this pregnant woman into his home as his wife, but he doesn't have sex with her until she had given birth to Jesus. So in Mary, we have a virgin conception and we have a virgin birth. Because Joseph never had sex with her. And of course, I don't think I need to tell you if, you, if you need a word study on the word no, and then it means sexual intercourse, you can go to the Revised English Version Commentary. I've got a fairly extensive word study on there about why no is to have sexual intercourse with. But why would Joseph not have sex with Mary until she had given birth to Jesus. I mean, lots of men who have pregnant wives know, and women know too, that you can have have comfortable sexual intercourse until you're fairly close along to your due date, certainly within, you know, six weeks or so or something like that. And women differ, men differ, but you get the basic idea. Joseph could have had sex with her and he didn't. Why not? Well, one was a cultural reason. Jesus Christ was the son of a king. Jesus Christ was God's son, God's king of the universe. If you have a woman who's been with a king and she's impregnated with a king, you don't want to cast any kind of doubt or dispersion on that like, well, maybe it actually is my child. And have Joseph had sex with Mary? And then if Joseph said, well, it's not really my child, it's God's child. Oh, yeah, right. No, see... Mary could give birth and Joseph could stand up and testify to believers, those people that would trust him and believe and say, I did not have sexual intercourse with her until she gave birth. This is God's son. And he would be exactly right. And it was very important in the ancient cultures that a woman that had been with a king then would not be allowed to be with anybody else. And for example, if you read the Old Testament record, David's first wife was Saul's daughter, Michael. And Saul got mad at David and gave Michael to another man, to Faltiel. And when the kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David were going to be united after Saul and Jonathan had died on Mount Gilboa, and Abner came to David and said, I want to reunite the kingdom. Everybody knows you, David, are supposed to be king. David said, you will not see my face unless you bring Michael, my wife. Now, David hadn't been with Michael in years, and she'd been comfortably married to Faltiel for years. Why did he want her back? Because he was the king. 
And in that culture, you didn't want to have any woman that you had been with out around with different men, because if she ever had a child, people would try to claim that that child was the the child of the king and then perhaps make a play for the throne. And so basically what's going on here is Joseph didn't have sex with Mary so that it could be clearly known in the culture this was the son of God by anybody that trusted Joseph or Mary and also simply out of his love and respect for God and his love and respect for Mary. And then I love the last phrase, and he called his name Jesus. Well, yep, the angel said to Mary, the angel said to Joseph, call your kid Jesus, and by golly, they do. Yahweh saves. And Yahweh does save in Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Name stated, <laughs> prophecy fulfilled. So now to continue the record, we go back to Luke chapter 2. And so verse 1 of Luke chapter 2 says, Now it came to pass in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the inhabited world for taxation. And that's our best understanding of what the registration was about. It was about taxation. And then the scripture says this first registration took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. That should help us chronologically, but it doesn't help us that much because it turns out that Quirinius was governor over Syria twice at two different times. And everyone, verse 3, went to be registered, each to his own city. Now, obviously, when Caesar Augustus said this about, you know, registering people for the taxation, one of the things we've got to be aware of is it wasn't like he was you know, he Instagrammed everybody and they dropped what they were doing and ran off to their hometown. You know, the first thing that would happen is there would be a huge period of time. He might say, you know, in the last half of the year or in the year of or whatever, but he wouldn't say, everybody stop what you're doing. I mean, for example, from the time that, that Caesar Augustus issued that decree for the decree even to reach Nazareth would be a good solid three months. So it's, it's not like Caesar gave um, a date that you had to go register. And that speaks very loudly because that means that Joseph had a choice as to when he could go to Bethlehem. He might not have had a choice like 10 years, but he, but he certainly had a choice like many months in which he could go to Bethlehem. In verse 3, everyone went to be registered, each to his own city. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, that's called Bethlehem, because he, and we know Mary too, was of the house and family line of David. And he went there, verse 5, to be registered along with Mary, who had been betrothed to him and was pregnant. So again, they haven't come together yet. Uh, so technically, because they haven't consummated the marriage, technically they're not husband and wife. They're still in the betrothal period. But as we've seen, it's gone back and forth between being betrothed and being wife or being betrothed and being a husband uh, because of the strength of the betrothal in that culture. And the text says, and Mary was pregnant. Now, what we have to know to understand about the text when it says Mary was pregnant, uh, it's the Greek word agkouos or agkouos, and ekuas simply means pregnant. That's all it means, pregnant. You know, she could be six weeks pregnant and she's ekuas. She's pregnant. She could be eight months pregnant and she's ekuas. She could be six months pregnant. She could be nine months pregnant. Ekuas just simply means pregnant. And yet what it happened was the traditional stories around the birth of Christ began very, very early and they introduced 
error very, very early. For example, there's a, a document that scholars call the Proto-Evangelium of James. Now, this was probably written in the 200s. And by the 200s, in the Proto-Evangelium of James, you're already starting erroneous traditions because the Proto-Evangelium, which was used by a lot of Christians as kind of the foundation for the Bible record, says that Joseph and Mary traveled, you know, basically when Mary was right on the verge of giving birth. And in fact, she didn't even reach Bethlehem and ended up, they ended up stopping and giving birth in a cave. But interestingly enough, you know, people have always just, (laughs) you believe anything but the Bible, you know. But the early traditions said that Mary was traveling right on the verge of giving birth. And so by the time you get to the King James Version in 1611, and in 1611, they didn't know the Greek as well as we do today. And so they took Agkouas, and how did they translate it? Being great with child. We don't know that. That's a total interpretation. It's a total tradition. You know, I've had a pregnant wife. You know, when my wife gave gave birth to our children, I know that in the last month of pregnancy, she was uncomfortable. You know, that's not rocket science. Men in that culture knew that. Women in that culture knew that. And Joseph is not going to, he's got a window of time here that he can take Mary to Bethlehem. He's not going to wait until she's uncomfortable in her pregnancy and then take her on a three-day donkey ride journey so that he arrives in Bethlehem. She's having Braxton Hicks the entire journey. She's uncomfortable the entire journey. And somehow or other, then they arrive in Bethlehem and she's got to give birth that night in in a stable. That is simply not the biblical record. That's so cold-hearted. Joseph loved Mary so much more than that. Absolutely. So Joseph would have taken Mary. Yes, she was pregnant. Well, we knew that already. How pregnant was she? I don't know. Was she six months? Was she seven months? She may have even been eight months, but she wouldn't have been uncomfortable yet because Joseph loved her. And he took her to Bethlehem, absolutely. Verse, and then they arrive in Bethlehem. And what do they do when they arrive in Bethlehem? Well, first of all, they'd arrive during the day. They wouldn't have arrived at night. People didn't travel at night. It wasn't safe. You know, it's not like they had cars with headlights and roads. You know, you're going around along rocky, unstable paths, and there's animals, wild animals out at night, and there's bandits out at night. Nobody, Joseph isn't going to go to Bethlehem with Mary and have her traveling at night on the back of a donkey. You know, he would travel during the daytime, and they would find a place to stay at night. And then he would travel in the daytime, and they would find a place to stay at night. And so it says, verse 6, now it came to pass while they were there, while they were where? In Bethlehem. So they'd probably been in Bethlehem for how long? Well, I almost can guarantee you they'd been there for over a month. They might have been there for six weeks. They might have been there for eight weeks. He went there when she was pregnant, and they would have found housing, and now the Bible's going to tell us about that. And it says, while they were there, the days, and the Bible uses days in the plural, and that tells us it's not that day. Because when it's that one day, then the Bible uses the word day in the singular or even the word hours. So Mary's pregnant. They go to Bethlehem. They find a nice place to stay. While they were there, the days were fulfilled for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no space for them in the guest room. 
Now, let's unpack this completely. And I want to start with there was no space for them in the guest room because that is a very literal translation of the text. The idea that there was no room for them in the inn is a mistranslation based on a misunderstanding that was born in tradition, not in scripture. And again, partially for time and partially because word studies, <laughs> when trying to, to sort out a word study, you know, it, it can be difficult. So I'm just going to say, when it, it says there was no space, the Greek word is topos, and it means space. It doesn't mean a room. You know, the translation, there was no room in the inn. Then we think a hotel room. That's not what the word topos means. It doesn't mean a room like a, a bedroom or a hotel room. It means a space, a place to lie down. And then it says there was no space in the guest room. And the Greek word is kataluma. And the Greek word kataluma means guest room. It doesn't mean in. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, which, by the way, is also in the Gospel of Luke, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan took the man who had been mugged and beaten up and took him to an inn. And the Greek word in is pandokion. And so the scripture isn't saying there's no room, there's no hotel room in the inn. It's this house that Mary and Joseph were staying in. There was no space in their guest room. And because of that, they put Jesus in a manger. And we'll explore that and unpack that in just a second. But, you know, this has been known for a while. And it just goes to show the power of tra tradition and how tradition shapes the way people translate. Because Robert Young, and if you do any Bible research at all, you're familiar with Young's Concordance of the Bible. Well, in the late 1800s, Robert Young did a literal translation translation of scripture, and it's called Young's Literal Translation of the Scripture. And in, by 1898, he had done his third edition. Here's his translation. This is the done in the 1800s by Robert Young, the author of Young's Concordance. There was not for them a place in the guest chamber. That's exactly the way Robert Young translated it in 1898. And that's right on. It's very accurate. There was not a place in the guest chamber. Interestingly enough, we go to the NIV. When did the NIV come out? 1984. In uh, what did it say? In 1984, the NIV, as it first came out, said there was no room for them in the inn. But when the NIV was retranslated in 2011 and came out, Here's the way the version read, because there was no guest room available for them. So even the NIV changed from in to guest room, and that is what the Greek word means. There was no space in the guest room. Well, if there's no space in the guest room, and Mary and Joseph are staying in this private house, where are they going to stay? Well, the family's going to inconvenience themselves and have Mary and Joseph stay in the main part of the house, right along with the immediate family. That's how intimately Mary and Joseph were loved and taken into this family. And again, what a beautiful story, the Christmas story, the birth of Christ, the story of love. Here's this loving family that took in this young couple, Joseph and Mary. Mary's about to give pregnant and they don't have any space in their guest room, but they take them right into the family living, made them just absolutely part of the family. And that's why the scripture then says that when Jesus was born, they laid him in a manger. You see, again, you go to Europe and in Europe they had stables and barns and a manger was in a barn. And so the tradition started that Jesus was born in a stable 
And, you know, and then you have, oh, it's a cold winter night, poor Mary and Joseph, and they're, they're alone, and they're cold, and they've been turned out, of, they've been refused from houses, there's no, no room space left for them in the inn, and so they have to go to a stable. That is, that's just not true. Mary and Joseph were living with a wonderful, loving couple in Bethlehem who took them into their home and treated them absolutely like immediate family. Where's the manger? In the an, an average village home, it's in the family living quarter, usually uh, down a little bit, down a, a little bit of a space. And why was that? Because most people were fairly poor and they didn't own many animals. They might own a milk goat. They might own a sheep. They might own a donkey, but they'd have one animal or one or two animals and so what would they do? To keep those animals safe and protected, they would bring the animal into their home at night. Well, then you want the animal to be calm. So what do you do? <laughs> well, you have a manger and you, and you stick some food in it. Just like today, we have animal stalls and there's so often there's, there's a feeding trough in the animal stall. Why? Keep the animal content and calm. And so people would want their animal to be content and calm at night. And so they had a manger in the house. And so here they took Jesus, Mary gave birth, and they laid Jesus, this little baby, in a manger. They would have cleaned it out, had fresh straw, and made sure Jesus was protected. And why did they do that? Why did they lay him in a manger in the main part of the house? Because there wasn't any space in the guest room. Oh, okay. And was did that demean Jesus in any way? No, for Pete's sake, the manger's down on the floor. You you know, you've got a little baby and, and what are you gonna do? Well you hold him and nurse him and stuff for a while, but sooner or later he's gotta sleep. And when he sleeps, you want him to be away from drafts, you want him to be make sure he's not being kicked or, or bumped or nothing's dropped on him, so you put him in a manger. It's for his protection. Absolutely. So she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloth. Basically, then she would wrap him up to keep him warm and also to dedicate him to God and laid him in a manger because there wasn't any space in the guest room. Now, were Mary and Joseph alone when she gave birth, when it says she gave birth to her firstborn son? Were Mary and Joseph alone? Well, <laughs> actually, Joseph wouldn't have even been there. <laughs> you know, the uh, this is a typical a woman giving birth in first century Palestine in village life. And how did that work? Well, that would work that as, as Mary started to go into labor, all the men of the house would leave. In that culture, you know, childbirth was something that women took care of. That was just private for women. In fact, it was private for women for years and years. Now, in today's modern culture, you know, a lot of times the husband is allowed in at the time of the birth. But, but even some hospitals still don't allow that. But birth was a, a, a thing that was taken care of by the women, and the men would graciously excuse themselves, and they'd go outside. If it was warm enough, they'd wait in the street. If it was cold or rainy, they'd go to somebody else's house, and then the, the women would come, and you'd have, who would you have there? Well, you'd have Mary, and she's giving birth to her firstborn child. And then you'd have the woman of the house, you know, whoever the, the mom was in the house. And if she had any older daughters, you'd have them there as well. And then if there was a village midwife, which in Bethlehem, Probably there was a village midwife. She would have been there too, and maybe a couple other wise women. And somebody listening to this might say, well, John, that, that's not in the Bible. Well, yeah, that's not in the Bible. Be why? Because the things that were standard, that were common, that were ordinary in the culture were left out of the biblical text. 
You know, it's just like the Bible doesn't go into the details. Like I say, there's no recipes in the Bible. There's no description of cooking pots. There's no description of how do you build a fire that you cook over. There's no description over where do people go to the bathroom and how do they wipe their bottoms. There's no description of any of that stuff. It was private. It was done in the culture. It was common. You know, when Elizabeth gave birth earlier on in Luke, what did it say? It just said she gave birth. And that's all it says to Mary. Gosh, you can go through the whole scripture, you know, with Samuel, for example, when Hannah finally got pregnant and conceived, then it says she gave birth. It doesn't say, and she rounded up the village midwife and a whole bunch of other women and blah, 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 just says, and she gave birth. It was common. It was understood. Now, if what had happened was not usual, then that gets written about. In other words, if the people of Bethlehem were so cold-hearted that somehow or other Mary and Joseph, or the, the people of the village are going to allow Mary and Joseph to give birth to her firstborn son alone, you know, somewhere like, you know, out in a sheepfold or something, that would have been headlines in the Bible. But the fact that she gave birth, normal village birth, just says so. And, and people get it. Absolutely. This isn't a cold-hearted story. This is, you know, women that loved each other and supported each other. And Joseph, who would be so supportive of uh, Mary in this and the men of the household, and they would graciously leave and wait outside until the women could, would come out and say, okay, you can come back in now. And that's exactly what would happen. And by the way, what would happen when it was announced that Mary had a child? You know, well, when, it, when the woman came out and announced that Mary had a son, there would be this huge rejoicing, this huge party, because a son added wealth to the family. As the son grew up, of course, you had the strength of the son who could help with so much of the physical work that needed to be done in that culture. But also when the son married, a woman came and lived with the son's family. The son did not go to the woman's family. So when a son was born, everybody could project that son's going to bring strength to the family. He's going to marry. He's going to bring a woman into the family. That woman is going to give birth to children. Those children are going to add to the clan. And so the birth, and by the way, and when the woman came into the son's family, she brought a dowry. So not only did she bring herself and her childbearing capacity, but she even brought money into the family. And so if a baby boy was born, there was a giant party in the street. There would be beating of drums and blowing of shofars and shouting and singing and big old bonfire and lots of food. Now, if a baby girl was born, that was exactly the opposite. If a baby girl would, was born, then the, the midwife or one of the women would come out and say, well, it's a baby girl. And the, the men would just say, you know, something, you know, like congratulatory, but you're going to everything is going to work out to the husband. And they would all just leave. And there wouldn't be any party. There wouldn't be any shouting. Why? Because the woman took away from the family. They'd raise her until she was 12 to 14, and then she would leave. Any children that she gave birth to would be part of her husband's family, and by would she leave, but she'd take her dowry. She'd take money with her. So a baby boy would add to the family, so there was a party. A baby girl would take away from the family in that culture, so there was no party. And so what do we know from, from this? That the that Jesus was born, there would have been shouting, there would have been a party, it would have been a really super wonderful time for everybody. And then, of course, we have the record of the, of the shepherds, and that comes up next. And the record of the shepherds is an, an absolutely wonderful addition 
to the Christmas record. And we are, I'm sure most of us are familiar with the fact that the shepherds were in their fields by night. That's probably another reason why it isn't December. There were some shepherds that in some December nights where you might be out, but generally speaking in the bitter cold, you would bring your your sheep into a sheepfold. And then the angel of the Lord stands before them and the glory of the Lord shines around them and they were frightened. And the angel says, don't be afraid. This is a a great record and I don't have the time to really teach all of the cool things about this record of the shepherd, but it's very, very powerful and very clear that the angel said to these shepherds that, you know, today, meaning, you know, it's nighttime by then, the Savior, the Messiah, the Messiah you've waited for since the first prophecy of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah has been born tonight in Bethlehem. And the shepherds got that, and they were godly men. And the angel tells the shepherds how to find the baby. You're going to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, they say in Luke chapter 2, verse 12. But um, notice that, you know, it's not like the angel had to give the shepherds a street address. You know, when the, when the shepherds went to Bethlehem, finding the baby was actually fairly easy. <laughs> he, you just l- listen for the shouting, look for the bonfire, see if you see the smell, the smell of food, uh, things cooking in the air, you know, and the, and the angel departed from them, verse 15. And the shepherds said one to another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby in the manger. After they saw it, they made known about the message that had been spoken to them about this child. And all who heard about it were amazed at the things that were told to them by the shepherds. Now, these shepherds knew that this baby was the promised Messiah who was going to deliver God's people and deliver them. And if they went and saw Mary and Joseph and the the baby Jesus, and he was in any way not being well taken care of. I mean, if it's a traditional Christmas story, you know, they walk into the stable, hear Mary and Joseph cold, alone, not being taken care of, you know, and the and these shepherds who know this is the promised Messiah are supposed to see this and kind of go, ah, oh, there he is, and leave. Not on your life. You wouldn't do it, and they wouldn't do it either. If those shepherds had walked into a stable and seen Joseph and Mary and they weren't being taken care of, and the angel, the army of Yahweh, had just appeared to them and told them this is the Christ, the promised Messiah, they would have looked at that. They would have been outraged. They would have been scandalized. They would be, they would ask themselves, how in the world did this happen? You know, what a, what an embarrassment to, to the world. What an embarrassment to Bethlehem. What a shame. You, Mary, Joseph, get your stuff together. We're taking you home. We're taking care of you. The only reason those shepherds saw the baby and then left and told other people was because when they saw the baby, they said, wow, He's, he's really being well taken care of. That's really cool. And, and they left and went to tell people. And then what did Joseph and Mary do? Well, they raised their little baby in Bethlehem. And then and the Magi hadn't come yet. The Magi aren't going to come for another year and a half to two years. And verse 21 of Luke chapter 2 says, When the eight days were completed for him to be circumcised. So like any male child in Israel, Jesus, at eight days old, was circumcised. And when they circumcise the baby, that's the day they name him. 
So he's, he's eight days old. He's circumcised, and they called him Jesus, which is the name he was called by the angel. And then verse 22, when the days of their ceremonial cleansing, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Yeah, why? Because Leviticus, the, the book of Leviticus says that if a woman gives birth, you know, she needs to be in a period of cleansing for 40 days, and then the baby is presented in the temple. Absolutely. And then verse 23, just as it's written in the law of the Lord, every male that first opens the womb will be called holy to the Lord. In verse 24, Joseph and Mary went to offer a sacrifice according to what's written or said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And we need to pay attention to that. That's very important. So at this point, we really want to pay attention to Leviticus chapter 12 because it helps us understand the Christmas tradition. I'm not going to read the entire chapter of Leviticus chapter 12, but it's worth stopping the teaching and going and reading Leviticus chapter 12. The point was that for a baby boy, a woman did a sacrifice and an offering on the 40th day. So here Joseph would have, and Mary traveled to Jerusalem to present Jesus in the temple and do a sacrifice. And Leviticus 12 verse 6 says, when the days of her purification are completed for a son or daughter, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and this is Old Testament, so the temple wasn't built yet, a year old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering, and he will offer it before Yahweh and make atonement for her, and she will be cleansed from the fountain of her blood. This is the law for she who bears whether male or female. Verse 8, very important. Verse 8, Leviticus 12, 8. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she may take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, the one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering, and the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So it says, if she can't afford a lamb, she can bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons. What does Luke say? Luke says that Mary and Joseph went to the temple Verse 24, to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What does that tell us? They would only have been allowed to offer that sacrifice if they were too poor to afford a lamb to sacrifice. Well, then the Magi couldn't have come yet. Because if the Magi showed up at the birth of Christ and gave Mary and Joseph, they would have handed it to Joseph, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Joseph's a righteous man. He's not going to hide the gold and pretend in front of God that he doesn't have enough money to buy a lamb. This tells you that the, there's no way that the Magi showed up at the birth of Christ. When Christ was born, Joseph and Mary didn't have any money. And 40 days later, they still didn't have any money. And so they were allowed to sacrifice in the temple doves or pigeons. Now, later on, the Magi are going to show up and give them gold and frankincense and myrrh, and then they'd have plenty of money to buy a lamb, but they didn't have it at this time. And so this is important for us to know because the idea that the, the Magi and miscalled kings so many times were there at the birth of Christ just simply is not true. It's not the case. The Magi, as we learn from the Gospel of Matthew, came some 18 months to two years later. And when we understand the true story of the birth of Christ. What a wonderful record of love and giving and sacrifice that Joseph so loved Mary and he took care of her. 
And Mary so loved God that she was willing to make those sacrifices and take those risks to be the mother of the Messiah, even when the prophetess would say later, a sword will pierce through your soul also. And that the family in Bethlehem loved Mary and Joseph enough to take them right in and make them part of the family. And that then the men would be so respectful like village life, they would just simply leave and let the women take care of the birth. And that the shepherds would come and announce the birth of Christ. Such a great record of God moving in play and counterplay between people and God. What The story of the birth of Christ is absolutely a fabulous, amazing story of love, of obedience, of sacrifice, of giving. And that's our model at, these, at this wonderful uh, season of the year, this holiday season, this Christmas season, when we have the chance to be like the people in this record, to be loving, obedient to God, sacrificial, giving. Wonderful, wonderful example set for us and a wonderful time to be like the people who were around at the birth of Christ. God bless you.